2: New American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit TabardIn.com.
1: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Master Sommelier, Carlton McCoy. In this episode, we'll talk to Carlton about representation in the wine industry, his journey from CCAP to CEO, and we'll hear Carlton's Julia moment. Stay with us, we'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia once said, Therein lies the science of the experienced wine connoisseur. The more you drink and think upon it, the more you'll know. While jokes abound about Julia having had too much to drink on TV, always a misperception, she was naturally goofy. She was anything but silly when it came to wine appreciation. In fact, her love of wine, which extended well beyond drinking it to the craft and people who make it, was something Julia discovered in France and learned about from her husband, Paul. As Julia's fame grew, she made it her mission to advocate for the California wine industry alongside her good friend, Robert Mondavi. As much as she loved a great French wine, she also believed in America producing wines to rival Europe. The fruits of her advocacy and the hard work of many others working in California vineyards, wineries, and tasting rooms is that California's wines, especially those from Napa and Sonoma, as well as Santa Barbara, are now globally prized. Someone equally passionate about California wine is Carlton McCoy. Carlton is CEO of Lawrence Wine Estates in Napa Valley. One of the youngest ever and only the second African-American to earn certification as a master sommelier. He is also a graduate of the Careers in Culinary Arts Program, also known as CCAP, a program the foundation has supported for many years. We spoke to fellow CCAP alum, pastry chef Lashita Perry, in episode 149. Raised in Washington, D.C., Carlton won a CCAP cooking competition garnering a scholarship to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. After graduating from the CIA, Carlton worked at some of America's top restaurants like Thomas Keller's Per Se, Marcus Samuelson's Aquavit, and Tom Colicchio's Craft Steak. While working for Eric Siebold's Citizen in DC, Carlton resolved to forge a career in wine. In 2011, he joined the Little Nell in Aspen, earning his Master Sommelier certification in 2013, and as wine director there, oversaw its 20,000 bottle cellar. In 2018, he moved to Napa Valley, becoming president and CEO at Heights Cellar, the first African American to run a major winery. After it was required by Galen Lawrence Jr., Carlton teamed with Lawrence to form Lawrence Wine Estates, which includes Heights Cellar, Stony Hill Vineyard, Burgess Cellars, and other Napa Valley vineyards. The business also includes demand estates, representing an international collective of wineries. Equally passionate about giving back, Carlton, together with Tahira Habibi and Akini Debose, launched the Roots Fund to address a lack of diversity in the wine industry. It provides resources and financial support through educational scholarships, wine education, mentors, and job placement, much like CCAP, by the way. He's a member of the Court of Master Sommelier's Diversity Committee and serves on the boards of the James Beard Foundation and Culinary Institute of America. You may recognize him from Nomad, a six-part CNN docu-series where Carlton takes viewers on a global exploration of place-based culture. He joins us today to tell us about his journey from CCAP to CEO and how he's working to make the wine industry more inclusive. Welcome to the podcast, Carlton.
3: Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I live in Napa Valley. Life can only be so bad.
1: It, it, yes. When the sun is shining in California, it's an amazing place
3: to be. It's where we call the sunshine tax. It's worth it. Yeah. yeah. Exactly.
1: That, that, yeah. As someone now in Southern California, you 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 play off the what it's like to be here and how expensive it is to live here.
3: I tell you, I have friends all the time. And says, Carlton, do you want to try to buy a house in Texas or Nevada and you know, you're playing these games? I said, look, I'd rather pay the extra fifteen percent and wake up every day overlooking Napa Valley, drive to work this way. Then you know I only got so many days, you know, and where you want to spend your days you know, in a suburb of Austin or if you want to live in Napa Valley? You know what I mean? It's like it's worth <laughs> the 10, 15%. Well,
1: since I don't know exactly how many listeners we have in Texas, I'm just going to say it's all about trade-offs, right? And everybody makes their own trade-offs.
3: No, I, you know, I, I there's a lot of places in the world and I, I've, I've been very blessed to travel to a lot of places that I love to visit, but just for me, I wouldn't live there. Um, there's a lot of international places where I love to go spend three, four nights, but I can't wait to get back home. You know there's a difference they're, they're they're great places, just like in the Napa Valley. There's a lot of people who who would hate to live here, yeah. You know, and they just would I don't know why, but I mean I'm sure they could find a reason
1: well and, and it's all relative to you know sort of what kind of employment you have because like you know Manhattan is a fantastic place to live if you're fabulously wealthy. if you're on a fixed income, it's one of the hardest places in the
3: world oh New York live, is so. it's only a great city if you if, if you're wealthy. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. I lived there for two years. I go. This is insane.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, now I know. yo yeah, Now we know you have clear opinions on this. I want to let's rewind a little bit because I wanted to ask you about Ccap and how that kind of set you up for for a course or or did or didn't. Maybe you'll tell me I'm wrong uh, for what is now such an accomplished, still at a young age career in food and wine.
3: Yeah, I mean, Ccap is is one. It's of culinary arts program. Boost. Started by a very very generous man, um, Richard Grosman. Uh, and Grosman is he's become very much like a father figure to a lot of people who maybe weren't uh, raised in a very stable households with a strong male figure. And he's continued to be that person in my life, one of those people in my life to this day. And he started this organization very much inspired by, you know, I'd say the titans of the era, and still are the titans in my eyes. Like Julia Childs, Jacques Pepin, it was really that heyday, and he really admired their commitment to teaching Americans, specifically at the time, how to be connected with food is something that wasn't a nuisance that you had to do when you came home. But it was an honor to be able to work with ingredients and craft great food for your family and friends. And he saw a need for that, especially in the urban communities, where he saw, look, these are not jobs that pay an enormous amount of money. You never become wealthy as a cook, but it was far more than what you were going to make, you know, not having that opportunity. And, you know, years later, he told me, he says, look, I was going to these communities and these kids knew far more about cooking, and cooking beautifully flavored soulful cuisine than any kid from my family. He says, so they were, were sort of, you were, you were almost trained your entire life to be a great cook. That's what you wanted to do. And I met him when I was 16, and very lost like a lot of sixteen year olds are, but that's a far more dangerous area in your life when you're in a place like Southeast DC, the risks are much higher. And he, you know, he put me on a path to um you know, to be where I am now. And it's that was very much, you know, if you can look at my life and say there's one point in which things changed, it was then, it was me and Richard Crossman.
1: Well, that's really powerful, and and obviously what he's accomplished is really admirable. I think what's interesting in what you said is a lot of what he and CCAP are providing is access. It's not so much that no young kids from underprivileged backgrounds know about cooking. As you said, a lot of them might come from families that are very connected to food and cooking, but it's also about kind of bridging that divide between... I, for lack of a better term, the rules and the way the the mainstream or particularly fine dining restaurant mm-hmm. industry works and yeah. how you would ever access that if you'd never heard of the CIA before.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of it. It's, it's um, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, I went from never knowing that being a, a chef was an actual career, you know, to, you know, being a teaching assistant at the CIA two years later. So what it tells you is that, the 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 barriers that exist, a lot of it is just exposure, right? Is one big part of it is you live in a neighborhood that doesn't have chefs. I don't know what the word chef was, right? And and you know what CCAP really aspired to do is take kids that, you know, if given the opportunity they felt could could excel. Because they don't do the work for you. They just go, look, if you're a sharp kid and you want to work hard, and you have a sort of basic passion for food. And I was always uh, a pudgy kid. I loved to eat. You know, I lived my entire life in the kitchen with my grandmother. It was the best part of my day always. And they would give you this opportunity, but then you had to take advantage of it. And just as easily it'd be taken away. You had to perform in school when you got there. You can get a special class, you know, just because you were from, you know, an underserved neighborhood. So part of it was just exposure. And once I knew I was like, man, people can make money doing this. This is wild. <laughs> you know <what> I mean, <laughs> I was, I've been cooking all my life. I was, I was like, I could be making money all this time. <laughs> well,
1: was your grandmother a caterer, though?
3: Yeah. So, in, in the Black community, you understand, there's a lot of it's a it's a very tribal community, which is what I actually love about my community. Is um, we sort of just make do. We support each other a lot in that community. So, you know, whether it was uh, birthday parties or some sort of church event or a neighborhood, event. you know, my grandmother was that person that would uh, she would she would cater. We had a commercial kitchen in the back of the church and we would cook these big pretty large events. You know, when you think about like most families never cook for more than six people, you know, maybe twenty on a big Thanksgiving, you know, gathering. We would cook for two, three hundred people. And I was a part of that at a very young age. And it talked to a lot about timing and execution and timelines and how to work with people. And, you know, it was very intense. And it, it, it was all my grandmother and my hands. So I was always the only guy in the kitchen. But that wasn't,
1: so it was sort of a community based thing though. And it, so it wasn't the main way she made her living.
3: It was one, it was one of the ways, but you know, me and my grandmother was a very generous person. So you know, she'd do it for free because that's just how she was. But yeah, she made money doing it. And, um, it was typically, I was the only guy in the kitchen. I was the only male. It was a grandmother. Um, her sisters and me, you know, and my, and my sister.
4: Wow.
1: So you, I think unusually for people who are at a high level or even at a medium level in the wine industry have a very solid background in food and cooking and being on the line. When, when did you kind of do this transition to like, I'm going to be about wine and, and food's going to be a little bit or cooking as a chef is going to be more in the background.
3: Well, you know, I, I, I took culinary school very seriously and I, I, I love learning specifically about, you know, classical French cuisine. I was um, to this day I'm still very, very passionate about it. I spent years of my life studying it. Um, and when I had the opportunity to actually start to visit these countries, I realized that there was little to no separation between food and wine culture and industries. Typically, actually winemakers are some of the best cooks, you know, and also these these classical French dishes that were um, engineered were you know a lot of times they were engineered in the wine region right so america because we're a new nation we haven't learned that connection yet and also france they have we have regions all over the country right so whether you're in the loire valley and champagne and alsace and you know every region has wine in the u.s we pretty much champion california oregon wine and that's just about it so you know, if you live in Tennessee, what's your connection with viticulture? You know, so mm-hmm. for me, it was once I actually started to experience them together, I realized that they were one and the same. And I took my first job in the dining room in New York, and started to learn about hospitality and and, and started studying wine. And I put the same emphasis on. It. I really, really loved it. It was just a continuation. There was it wasn't a, it, it wasn't sort of I'm I'm you know I'm, I'm aspiring to have this career change. It was it was continuation of that study of, uh, you know, food mine culture.
1: So I was curious, I was just thinking about some of the reasons also that you ended up working front of house instead of in the kitchen were, were monetary, which then related to you not coming from a privileged background. I was curious uh, to hear more from you about the Roots Fund and whether that was really born out of your experience. Because let's be frank, I, I still think we we would agree, but tell me if I'm wrong. That the wine industry is still pretty elitist and white dominated. It's maybe changed a tiny bit, but not a lot.
3: Sure, but I, I say it's not exclusive to the wine industry. I would say an industry that it was involved with a luxury good, and wine is ironically still looked at as a, a luxury good. Although, um, yeah, eighty percent of the wine in the U.S. is under under thirty dollars. let consumed, It's probably actually under twenty five. So. It's really not a luxury, but it's marketed that way. We're always dominated by a demographic. And for me, I was raised in a way where, you know, being mixed race, you you were always sort of caught in between the different sides of the coin. And I really just tried to be myself in the situation. And if I was passionate about it, then people embraced me. And I worked very hard. And I didn't really have as many of those hurdles once I, I proved myself just like anyone else. You know, I I, I saw the opportunity. and. Um, to, to just to learn and to learn about different parts of the world and how people live, and I, I understood that those barriers existed, but I was not going to allow that to hinder me in any way.
1: And so, to tell us more about how, what the Roots Fund is doing or or what your approach has been.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a hundred percent modeled off of um, Ccap. Uh, it is a copy and paste of the the concept, um, and which I'm modeled- sure
1: Richard is just fine with.
3: Yeah, 100%. I, I mean, we told him. So, Akimi was louder. Yeah, he was. I mean, Akimi DeVos, who's the executive director, was also uh, a CCAP student. Uh-huh. And so, when I talked to her, it was like, hey, look, this is what we want to do. And it was model CCAP, take out careers, uh, probably, probably culinary arts, and then put in careers to wine, you know, and like you can model it that way, you get it. And it was, it was looking through the lens of what we discussed in the beginning, which was, if you would just expose people in these various communities, whether it be Latinx, African American, Native American, Asian American communities that typically don't have a, a large presence in the wine industry, about what the potential is and where they could work in those industries, then you would pique people's interest, you know, um, at a far more rapid pace than if obviously they never knew it existed before. And then and then it was about raising funds to try to fund some educational opportunities for. Um, students that needed it. Not every student that comes from a community of color um, is from a a, a poor neighborhood, but for um, those who were, who who didn't have the financial means to do it, we would help fund those and that's what we do. And the last is job placement. So we try to use the influence we have in various aspects of the wine industry to get them in the room. They've got to interview, they've got to get the job, but we at least get them in the room and we try to find opportunities for them. Um, And it's been it's been wildly successful um, and a lot of that frankly has to do with uh, Akini and her ability to to I'd say build it at a very rapid pace, much faster than I ever thought we could.
1: That's great to hear are are there any examples either directly from the roots fund, which I know is relatively new, or even just where you're seeing either things that you're pleased to see or excited to see in terms of the wine industry? Diversifying. Obviously, you yourself are one example, but I was just curious of others that are 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 starting to materialize, or if you're seeing the change accelerate. Oh, for sure.
3: I I mean, we're seeing major, major change. I mean, the the industry has absolutely embraced it. Um, You know what? what, uh, You know whether that is for genuine reasons or for economic reasons. To me, I actually don't care. Um, The results the same, Um, and and you're you're absolutely seeing uh, this this embrace. Of uh, communities that typically i'd say were, were were didn't have a seat at the table for for a very long time in some cases there were barriers that were were there and then in some cases um there were just communities that again were not engaged with wine. so now that they are it's like what well, great now you're you're embraced and this is another voice at the table and it's been fantastic to see how fast that it's 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 changed and um You know, we we look at the lens of every other industry, whether it be fashion or uh, music, the more voices at the table, the more dynamic and exciting the industry is.
1: Gotcha. So I was also curious that um, you obviously, or maybe not obviously, people haven't actually read or heard that much about it before, but it's a huge amount of work to become a master sommelier, as I mentioned you know you're one of the youngest and the f- f- second African American to do it which which is also though to say that not that many people accomplish it of, of out of the whole human population so it's a very very difficult thing to achieve but you've kind of pivoted more to the business side of the wine business so are you still marrying the two up or 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 is it kind of like been there done that moved on
3: no it's all in the same i think that experience has helped me um be a better uh, visionary for what we're doing here is understanding, in my opinion, what great wine is, understanding luxury goods, understanding what the in consumer is looking for and, and how to sell it. It's, it's critical. I mean, it's the part that often is missing on the side of the business. They tend to, you know, you work in this sort of vacuum of this industry noise of what you think you should be doing, but you're not out in the industry talking about what people are actually are demanding. And we found a very interesting niche here in the Napa Valley for what we're interested in, which is producing wines that are typically much more elegant, lighter, more terroir driven than what had been produced in the last call it 20 or 30 years. Um, you know, you have to remember that in the 60s and 70s, when Napa was really finding itself, they were making very elegant, really pure wines. And then the modern era, the Robert Parker era hit, and the wines got you know, big and massive, and you know, and, and that would, it, those are not the wines that attracted me to, to, to Napa Valley or attracted even the Lawrence family to Napa. It was the sixties and seventies wines that we really loved, and even the early eighties. So we really built an entire enterprise around um, a structure and a flavor profile that we really love, which are again more elegant, more pure wines um, that have more more complexity and more of a terroir expression. And that that perspective that philosophy is 100 percent a derivative of my experience as a sommelier.
1: Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, that that's that idea, and and certainly the criticism that Europeans like to sling at American wines is they're over oaked or too big and hit you over the head. And right, that that's kind of where Nap and Sonoma sort of drifted. Yeah. At, and then that was the sort of backlash,
3: if you will. Yeah, I agree. And they're not, I mean, again, it's, it's all a matter of taste, right? And, you know, I, I, have never once stated that what I enjoy drinking should be the taste of all. And that's where I think people get wrong. Um, it's, you know, there are so many people in the world that drink wine not and that drink quality wine that you can in this market, be what you want to be. And there will be, uh, um, you know, a, a very motivated buyer who's excited to, to drink those wines. It's about finding your, your crowd. And that's really what we've endeavored to do. And uh, we, you know, just like our approach to, you know, uh, I'd say most things in the world is, you know, my existence and who I am does not diminish you know, who you are in any way. It's not a competition. Um, and I think that's a metaphor for a lot of issues we have around the world in general. Mm.
1: That is an excellent point. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with more from Master Sommelier and CEO of Lawrence Wine Estate, Carlton McCoy. Stay with us.
2: This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com.
5: Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new series on Heritage Radio Network called The Culinary Call Sheet, where we give a peek into the back kitchen of culinary media. I'm your host, April Jones.
4: And I'm your co-host, Dara Resnitz. Part of why we started this show was to offer an unofficial mentorship for anyone who is interested in learning about all aspects of food and video whether that's TV, social media, online, or just something you want to do for fun.
5: Absolutely. What was once niche or a little silly, as I'm sure you remember, Darren, when we started out. Yes, ma'am. Has now become such a massive playing field for so many creatives using food as the medium.
4: It's something that has driven us professionally and personally for so many years. What excites me the most about this show is that we're going to, sit down with some of the industry leaders to hear how they made it and what drew them into this industry.
5: With 20 years in the culinary production game ourselves, we're hoping we can give, through these conversations, an insider's view into personal stories from the field, as well as an in-depth behind-the-scenes look into some of the most popular food programming in today's evolving culinary media landscape.
4: We'll be covering everything from how to style your food, to how to license IP, to developing your own ideas and some tips from the masters of how to host your own show.
5: Yeah, it's a little bit of conversation, how to, and how do you do the things that you do in culinary media, which I'm so excited about. I love so many of the guests that are coming on this season. We have talent from Food Network, from Vice Media, Eater, Refinery29.
4: We've met some of the best people in the world, both in front of and behind the camera. And we're bringing them all together to share their stories their delicious adventure, and their unique journey into this crazy world.
5: So to be the first to hear our episodes when they launch this fall, go to wherever podcasts are streaming and hit subscribe. And make sure to give us a follow at the Culinary Call Sheet on Instagram.
1: Welcome back. We're talking to Master Sommelier, host of CNN's Nomad, and CEO of Lawrence Wine Estate's Carlton McCoy. So Nomad, which is the travelogue TV series you created and hosted for CNN, it kind of took you on this cultural expedition around the world. And I was just curious how that experience and then uh, whatever public response you've received from from the show, is that impacted how you're navigating the wine business we were just talking about or or even how people respond to you as a wine professional?
3: Yeah, I think um, I've never been one to sort of, I see I live inside of a predictable box of the, what, how I should operate. Um and I think it further confuses people as to who I am and what I do. Uh you know, it's it's you try to um you try to encapsulate the titles and articles and so forth and it's like Carlton McCoy, you know, master Salonnier, former chef, CEO, host and it's like, Okay, well, you know, the goal is that they want to just say my name and you know, just mean whatever it means to whoever's listening. Um that's what it is. It's I think the world is uh much too exciting to, to just stick to one um one sort of little bubble. Um so I think the show I think personified that when we tried to navigate a lot of cultural pillars. So food was a big part of it because it's been a big part of my life, but also um, you know, touch on when wine when it was appropriate in the country and beverage. And then there was a lot of, you know, different toes in the water of um, some social issues and 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 you know, religion and sports and art and all the things that make a place in the world very exciting and unique and you know it was just a reminder of uh, uh, how interconnected what we do in the wine industry is to other cultural pillars in the world and it's a reminder of that and it's really helped us look at our estates through that lens of what else are we connecting to or are we living in this little bubble of wine or are we not finding ways to connect it to the art world you know to, to great chefs you know to You know, whatever it is, like, are we connecting to the rest of the world or are we doing what most of the wine world does, which is live in this little, its own little bubble, which is very common in, in, in the wine industry.
1: I think that's a great point because I'm struck by that. And you mentioned that before, that when you were able to travel in France in particular, how much in in European countries like France and Italy and Spain, wine is part of regular culture. It's not this little niche thing that's a luxury good that only certain people access. And it seems like that's where you connect up what you want to do with Nomad. And it relates to your job at Lawrence Wine Estates in that Looking at wine as part of everyday culture, not this specialist thing that's lying out here.
3: Correct, and I think we often look at it that way because we're still a, a new wine drinking nation in the U.S. You know, we're still getting used to, you know, how does it live in our day to day lives? And because of that, we see it as this sort of isolated thing sitting over here while we live our, our lives. In you know, other nations that have been drinking wine, you know, uh, for centuries, sometimes you know, even more. It's just what it's just it just it finds itself in 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 everyday life you know on the lunch table on the dinner table on the picnic it's just it's what we grab
1: yeah I was struck by that too because I also people may get confused because I say I'm like originally from several places because I'm a native Californian but I was raised in the Midwest and I think that and and for a good part of my upbringing so I'm like really close to being a native of the Midwest yeah. but I'm not technically but I think when you are, you have a different perspective than if you only or come from the coast and don't really have any, mm-hmm. you know, direct experience. And yeah. I was interested that Lawrence Wine Estates actually has that Midwestern Southeast kind of connection. And I was just wondering for for you if that also kind of informs this perspective, like you were saying that in tennessee the wine industry is not really part of people's daily consciousness do you do you feel like that's giving you guys a unique advantage or you're approaching things differently as a result
3: yeah i, I think so i mean it's it's just everything is about perspective it, that um, you know when i when because i've lived in so many places um and been able to travel so much you just start to realize that a lot of the the this little like local see bubble-minded tribalism that exists is all engineered it's not reality and that you have to take inspiration from everywhere and see the world as, as a global market especially in today's world and how you can approach things it has to be authentic has to be real but it has to connect to other cultural aspects in the world to be successful um and you know we're really fortunate to have a number of people from our company from all walks of life and that's made from very exciting and dynamic meetings and, and brainstorming sessions and how we approach things and uh, we'll, we'll always do that we'll always be that type of enterprise
1: and, and do you think that there is a radically different approach to it from people from the southeast or or actually what you've learned is there is more commonality than there is difference
3: Well, I, I you know America America's is I mean it's it's incredibly Probably more local than people like to think is. Depending on the part of the country, and it's it's a completely different planet. The way people think and the way they approach things. Um, so I, I I just I try to like challenge myself to get out of any sort of travel minded mindset. It, it's same with our business is, when we're going down this path. It's like, okay, are we are we are we doing this because it's sort of the way things have been done, or are we doing this because it's like our perspective and our lens? Like, can we change that filter and see a different way? Like. It's always a challenge it's a, it's a, it's a ever present um, desire to challenge yourself to look through a new lens that maybe not be your own right it's it's a it's a it's a challenge, but you have to do it
1: <laughs> that, that that's a fair point yeah. so going bigger picture, I was just curious, given everything we've discussed and all these different perspectives that that you bring to the table both. In your 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 past lives and in your present, I was curious what your impression is of you know we're entering this fierce period of the climate change discussion. We're also entering a, a very strong period of a lot of evolution in dining out, which is driven by the economic. Um, shifts and changes. So what's your take right now on where you see, and, and you can speak to it from a Lawrence Wine Estate's perspective or your own, just like where's the wine industry, particularly American wine industry headed?
3: Uh, you know, I, I I think everyone's trying to figure that out right now. You know, we, there is the uh, sort of um, company by company efforts. And I uh, think we try to do what we can here. We um, have quickly become the largest biodynamic farming company in um, in all of california we have 650 plants at acres that are all farmed with biodynamic practices which it, it pretty much takes away any chemical uses in the vineyard uh, at all and it's all a very natural farming we till the soils uh, very rarely we try to use very little water as possible so we do things in our company try to counteract that but obviously this it's we're, that's still a very small effort in the grand scheme of the entire wine industry around the world. Um, mm. But because we're an agricultural business first, we are very aware of the effects of climate change. You know, agriculture uh, is one of the old- oldest continuous forms of agriculture where there are actually records, right? So we actually have records of temperatures and rainfall and uh, harvest dates and all those things that you can use to measure differences in um, in, in climate and in, in, in temperature, and so for us, we've seen that there, there is a difference. And really, what we're trying to do is assess what those are and how do we mitigate them. But it's a global issue, right? You can only do so much yourself. That there are much bigger um, industries that have an impact on on us than just what we do. As if you know, the whole you know wine industry decides to dramatically change how it operates. It still is like a, a drop in a massive bucket uh, of world industries that need to make a change. Hearing news as we've heard in the last, um, you know, couple weeks of you know a very small percentage of countries that have made uh, commitments to changing the way they operate, not you know actually following through with it. You go well, you know, we can only do so much. but The world has to make adjustments for, for it actually to make any measurable change. You know, we're very much a small industry. At the mercy of you know these much larger industries, yeah you know, so
1: and and do you see I was going to ask you that about globally versus california or or the Pacific Northwestern wine industry, do you see that the the challenges actually are more similar across the global you know European and southern hemisphere wine industries as in California? or do you think there's there's distinct differences in what each area is kind of facing?
3: They're all unique, and I think that it's important to frame it as climate change and that global warming. There's some areas that are colder and rainier than they used to be, and some that are a lot warmer and drier than they ever were before. But either way, everyone is noticing pretty massive shifts. Um, and what we try to do here is there's preventative measures but also we still have to farm every day so we're looking at different ways to be able to farm to mitigate some of these for instance you know it, it, when's the last time we had our, you know two years in a row of, of proper rain in california you know we have right but we still have to farm vineyards and in, in you know in a way that preserves water because we also only have so much groundwater to be able to use so all these things we take into consideration as we're operating because. You have to, you know, we make investments and commitments to own these estates for generations and you're setting them up to be able to, to produce great wines for centuries. So if you're gonna do that, you've gotta, you've gotta work around what you have, um, right? And, 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 and farm in a way that is conducive for what you currently have. Unfortunately, it's so inconsistent, you don't know what you're gonna get next year. They used to be a little bit more predictable.
1: Well, and I think that's an interesting confluence of of biodynamic. And for people who don't know, it it it's it it has some similarities to being organic, but it's less about certification and it's more about practices like no-till and not using pesticides. But it's kind of an interesting look at I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, it would have been considered more woo-woo and just environmentalist. But call I think we would call
3: it witchcraft back then. I mean it's almost you know, they, they, you know, it's, it's, they, um, I mean, even when we were, you know, we, we purchased Heightseller. Cellar. Cellar was one of the first wineries in the Napa Valley to ever go fully organic. And at the time it was looked upon as, is this weird thing, you know, why would you ever, why would you do that? You know? And, um, you know, we look back and go okay that was the right thing to do now you're seeing far more wineries go organic even though not as many as it's probably shouldn't and could do it so you know it's, it's always trying to be ahead of things and do what you think is right and you know people will catch up when they catch up you really can't run your business that way
1: well and i was going to say that i think what you also just described is going biodynamic is an actual economic response to these climate issues, as they affect agriculture, it's not—it's not only a kind of conceptual. Like we need to be more environmentally conscious. It business-wise makes sense given the the variability.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the the dangerous part is is um, when people try to deny it. It's okay to say like, you know, I am, um, you know, I I just don't. I recognize it's happening, but I don't agree that that's the solution. That I can live with, actually. Then we can then we have a debate. But where we have major issues is when people still deny it's an issue, and that's that's it's it's scary. It's very dangerous. It's like watching your house burn down and go. Well, there's no fire here, you know. It's sort of what what we're we're seeing. That's 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 really scary. And we still have people in the wine industry here, are you know that's the song they're they're singing. You know, we just try to. You know, I, I'm not one for a a fight over these things. For me, I'd rather you know we can have a conversation and then you know we go back to operating the way we are we try to push things forward right we always want to be the leaders in this industry in in in, in every way and that means that sometimes it takes people a little while to 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 jump on board to get it um but that is you know that's the case with every progressive movement
1: so on, on that note i also wanted to ask you about the sort of differences because I think this is a newer thing in in Napa and Sonoma. It was, to me, always about sort of these curation of these exclusive and pedigreed labels. And there's been a lot more movement and consolidation because it's a very expensive and risky business. But I was curious sort of how Lawrence Wine Estates, which is now a collection of different um, domains and vineyards, and then you also have Domen Estates. And, And are they totally different businesses or how do they complement each other?
3: Yeah, so so Lawrence Wineries is it's really it's it's a it's a collection of um, of wineries that are focused on natural farming, lower intervention winemaking, and more elegant terroir-driven wines. Domain Estates is uh, a California-based sales and marketing agency that represents those wineries, but also has a much larger portfolio of wineries that it represents. It's run completely independently. Um, I oversee all of them, um, but we have team members who directly manage those companies. Um, and they have two very different um, Reasons for being in large wine states, those are actual producing wineries. Dominic states doesn't produce any wine, they buy wine from those wineries, um, and, and other imported wines and represents them uh, on the global market.
1: And did, does sort of sitting over the two kind of give you also a unique perspective, or or they Absolutely. tend to, yeah,
3: it helps a lot. It helps me to guide decisions on both. Um, as, as we strategize, I mean, right now is a big time for us. Where so we're, you know, we strategize and technically here we have 10 companies. So we build, forecast and budget for all 10 every year. And some of that is intertwined. And some of the goals of one has to be sacrificed for the goals of the other. And um, it's our, it's my job to be that sort of referee to do what is in the best interest of each company. So none of them fails.
1: And so is Demen actually also an importer or mainly it's an exporter mm-hmm. of, of Lawrence Wines?
3: It, it is. It, well, it, it exports Lawrence Wines, but we also have um, an import portfolio, uh, including some really incredible wines from all over Europe. Um, we just signed on the entire Mazze family portfolio, and they have estates all over Italy. Um, we have Le Granat, Champagne, we have Domaine de Monti in Burgundy. Uh, we have the Mollet family in Sancerre. Yeah, I mean... This really goes on. Um, so it's, it's growing very, very quickly. And you may have heard um, this morning I don't know if you're plugged into Y Media, but we just um, announced the acquisition of um, Chateau Lescombe, which is um, a second growth in, in, in the village of Margot and Bordeaux. We actually uh, finally we um, closed the deal on that. So we're now the owners of that. Um, so that just adds to um, the excitement of my life, but also the excitement for, <laughs> for the entire team.
1: Congratulations! So, is this the first entree then on the Lawrence Wine Estate side of owning a vineyard outside of the U.S.?
3: Yes, yes, it's the first, and we we felt really confident that this is uh, it was the right move for us, and um, you know uh, the type of estate that we really liked, which is you know they um, you know make really beautiful, classically structured wines. Um but you know the the older ownership was was a much larger company. and we came in as um, a group that was rooted in in the wine industry and, and we feel that we can really help us go move into the next um, um, layer of evolution, if you will.
1: Wow, that's all exciting. Well, yeah. we we need to sort of wrap up, but I felt like we couldn't have all of this business conversation without talking a little bit about wine. And I was just gonna ask you, like, to call out something that you're excited about that you've been drinking lately. That's kind of right for this time of year.
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's fall and, um, here and, uh, it starts to get a little bit cold and you see the food get a, a, you know, a touch richer. Um, and when that happens, you start to, to go a bit South. And I, I love, um, the wines of, of, of the Rhone Valley, especially the Syrah based wines. Mm-hmm. Um and Saint Joseph is one of my favorite villages because the wines tend to be um very mineral and sort of crunchy and um but have great depth and they use a touch less new oak, which I really prefer. And you know, it, but also the price for Saint Joseph is a little bit lower than you know, Koriti or even some Kona's. Um and they, they can be really, really fantastic wines. And I actually like them. You know, just a little cooler in cellar temperature, and they're they're really beautiful lights. It's like what we reach for at home all the time.
1: That, that's great to know. We'll look out for them. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll hear Carlton's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or you can tweet us at juliachildjcf. We'll be right back.
4: When you flip anything, you really. You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see?
1: From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Carlton, what's your Julia moment?
3: It was really interesting. um, Even when I was a kid, I loved watching cooking shows, and there were two cooking shows at the time that um, I would always have on. One was, it's still to this day, probably my favorite cooking show is Two Fat Ladies, Mm -hmm. um, which is an epic, epic show. Um, and then, and then, and, then and for those who, said, who
1: don't know, you're not making a slur. That's literally the name of the show. Correct,
3: correct. And uh, and then Julia's show, which was, um, I'd say, more more entertaining, uh, just her personality. So when I went to Coloray School, um, I was maybe a year and a half in. And and Julia actually visited the school. She was much older at the time. And when I got to meet her, what really struck me was we were in this era. It was the first big era of like the celebrity chef and we always felt that they were sort of like these untouchable like you know um you know really intense people and and they were celebrities and what i found and then what i felt from from julia was this extreme um uh, approachability and graciousness that was not always modeled in a lot of the celebrity chefs at the time who were really focused on their brand and they were there was everything that comes with being a celebrity um, you know at that time it was a big deal and she was just so hospitable and so easy to connect with and there was this um, this genuine um, humanity about her that that really struck me and, and it, it, uh, it one it made me love the, the show more because you so, okay, she's the same person on television as she is in, in, in real life. And I was just a culinary student at the time. And, you know, those sort of moments really uh, become what you feed off of when you deal with difficult times in, in, in the industry is the people who motivate you, inspire you. And it's not one thing that she did, it's just what she represented and who she was. This person who was at the very top of her game and was this iconic figure was still, um, the same person hadn't changed her. She was, uh, she understood how incredible our industry was and its ability to connect people, and that really was always about people. And she did that. She taught Americans how to laugh and enjoy being in the kitchen and, and, and ensure that it wasn't a chore. And she just was the same person. I was just really taken back by that. I, my my expectation was very different.
1: That's lovely. And I i was struck by, in our entire conversation, Carlton, how thrilled Julia would have been to hear about all of this progress and sophistication and complexity and exciting opportunity, as well as in, in what you just described with this France, French vineyard acquisition, this melding of these worlds that, that yeah. she loved. So I think she'd be, be smiling. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you. I appreciate you having me.
1: Our pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. If you want to keep up with Carlton, he's at Carlton McCoy on Instagram and Twitter. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm T Shulkin on Twitter. And make sure to follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram to be in the know the SPCE sneak preview event at Maddie's Tavern in San Inez Valley sold out in 48 hours. You'll have to look for the next one. The Julia Child audio clip from the French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH, thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, Downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundations world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash
3: subscribe.